0: I am honored, equally as much as Jeff, to be here today. You know, uh, I'll just tell you up front that uh, I'm not the world's greatest preacher. I'm more of a preacher, a speaker and a preacher at the same time. And uh, while I admit that I'm not the world's greatest preacher, I've got to tell you that in my years of uh, 40 years of ministry at, at West End, I, uh, I have seen a phenomenon That has occurred again and again, and I I share this with you because it might impact some of you today. But over and again, during my sermons, many people are cured of insomnia in my past history. And so for those of you that are suffering from sleep deprivation, uh, today could be your lucky day, and uh, I hope it is for your sake. My uh, my sermon is entitled, Cloud Gazing is for the Birds. And you'll see in a few minutes what that's all about, but uh, I want to remind you of something you don't want to be reminded about on a Sunday uh, in church, but you know we're living in a day when our world has literally been turned upside down. I'm not just talking about the world of the Sudan or Iraq or Iran, Haiti, some of those notorious places around the world that we're used to hearing about their disasters, and that we've become pretty adept at backburnering thoughts about those places, because we like living in the cocoon that we call America. It's a blessed and wonderful country to live in. But now, suddenly, we are facing with a shocking new reality that we've got some issues of our own that we have to deal with in our little world. This is the country that the rest of the world, with all of those disasters, has always turned to for their own solutions. And now we're looking for some for our own place. As you know, to date, there are more than 200,000 Americans who have died from COVID-19 and more to come. I checked the news this morning and already it's a little over 205,000. And we just can't believe that it's happening here. And what is happening is that it is pulling the security blanket out from under us in a way that really has not happened in my time uh, and probably yours as well. We have now found ourselves in The untenable position of biding our time, wondering what's next and hoping for some good news. Well, here's a little bit of good news. Uh, All of us who are here today, most Americans, even those who are watching online, have so far survived the pandemic. We have been quarantined for months. We are wearing masks and we have done our best to honor social distancing and waiting for this COVID nightmare to end. And hopefully, at some point soon, uh, it will. The conventional thinking is that then we can get back to normal, right? But I wonder about that. Because unfortunately, COVID-19 is not our only problem. We find ourselves in a perfect storm of racial injustice issues, record unemployment, and the most toxic pre-election political milieu in American history. So many things are changing. And we're all thinking, will we we ever be the same again? Well, here's one thing that always will be the same, that will never change. And that is the Missio Dei, the mission of God, the calling that Jesus has left his disciples and which continues to the disciples in the present day. And you know what? It's that very calling that can make a huge difference in how we, Christ followers, can weather the current storm that we're in. You see, I believe that the issues of our day have placed the church in the perfect position to live out the mission, the calling, that Christ has left us. Historically, when a church has been under the guns, it has seen its finest hour. And again and again, revival, revitalization, growth seem to take place when the people of God come to a place of desperation and turn to Him for help. I don't know if any of you have read much of Tom uh, uh, Philip Yancey's uh, writings, but he is a tremendous Christian author. I recommend him to you. He's written What's So Amazing About Grace and particularly uh, interesting to me and and really uh, uh, a book that has helped me personally is a book um, uh, on the historical Jesus, um, The Jesus I Never Knew. In that book, he talks about some of the great revivals of the past. For example, in the first century, and we're going to talk a little bit about this in a few minutes, the early church, just uh, maybe a year or so into the ministry that was going on there after Jesus ascended, suddenly were persecuted, and they ended up having to flee Jerusalem where things had been going pretty well. And along the way, they were hollering over their shoulder to people that they, that they were passing by. And Jesus is alive. But we want to tell you about Jesus. Why don't you visit us when we, uh, when we arrive at the next, de- next destination and we'll tell you about him. Well, Yancey points out that in the 1960s and 70s, when China issued just an all-out persecution of Christians there, you know what happened to that fledgling underground church that was already in existence and that the government decided to persecute, Clancy points out, Clancy, I'm thinking of the, the, the famous spy writer, uh, but uh, Yancey pointed out that the church grew to 50 million under the most intense persecution that any church has ever experienced. He said that to his knowledge it is the greatest revival in the history of the Christian church that took place while people were under persecution. We are living in such a time of opportunity right now. Through our words and deeds, our message should be providing hope and salvation to the millions of people who currently are are frustrated and, and feeling hopeless and full of fear. We should be spiritual first responders. But my sense is that so far the church has not done a very good job of responding to this great opportunity. And please understand, I'm not talking about your church, or my church, or any particular local church. I'm talking about the impact that the body of Christ should be having on the world right now. And that's what I want to talk about to you for the remainder of this sermon. Which is based on ten verses from Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. The context of those verses is first century Jerusalem, 40 days after Jesus' resurrection as he appeared to his disciples and gave them their walking papers. Follow with me as I read. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men, the apostles, and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Well, then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and in Samaria, and all the world. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, but suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now, before I go any further, I want to bring to you a loving warning which is applicable to every congregation, including yours here at Gaten Baptist. And by the way, this warning is like the main take-home challenge of my sermon today. So those of you who are on the verge of dropping off and and, uh, I'm praying that you'll be healed so that you can hear the rest of the message, but you at least know what the final point is right now. Here it is, my warning. Beware of mission drift. Mission drift. You say, what's mission drift? Mission Drift, as it relates to churches, is, I believe, defined most succinctly in a book authored by Peter Greer and Chris Horst titled, The Unspoken Crisis, and here's how they explain Mission Drift. Without careful attention, faith-based organizations, churches, and others, will inevitably drift from their founding mission. Drift happens slowly for reasons that make good sense at the time. Like, why turn down a donation when the donor is only asking you to tone down your Christian message just a little bit? Of course, later it becomes apparent that the desire for more resources has displaced an important biblical value causing major upheaval in their ministry. In reality, mission grip happens in a church when anything distracts and then detracts a congregation from its mission and calling most certainly the current issues that we're facing in our culture and in which the church is living pose a major distraction of our vision and calling I mean think about it only recently have we been able to meet like we are this morning and we're just a skeletal group of what once existed in the body of Christ on a local basis our church included we have very scanty attendance right now, just as you are having. And you know, it's, it's a shame that it's happening this way because God intended for us all to be together in the body of Christ. You know? He intended for us to bring our gifts, to hear vision from our church leaders, to encourage one another, to occasionally confront one another, and at times to just be friends who hug and love and care for our Christian community. And I think you'd all agree that while the way we've been able to connect is pretty good, nevertheless, Zoom and YouTube and some of the other resources that we use don't get the job done the way it's supposed to be when the body of Christ is united together. So now let's go back to Acts chapter 1 and let me break it apart just a little bit for you in terms of what happened there. For it's in that Pericope that I read to you that we learned that those first disciples of Jesus, at those early stages of church history, I'm talking about 40 days into Jesus' post-resurrection appearances, the disciples were dangerously close to mission drift already. According to the Acts 1 account, they were so enamored with Jesus' talk about the coming kingdom of God that later on when he issued his promise of Holy Spirit baptism... That would soon empower them for mission their first response was wow jesus that's really cool now listen there are some other questions that we have about things you've been talking about like what about that restoration of the kingdom message you preached last week at resurrection baptist church are we understanding you correctly that right now that's about to happen that's on its way and it'll be here soon Jesus' response, I think, was a little disappointing to them. He said something like, and this, these are my own words, not Jesus's, okay? He said, Are you kidding me? I promise you a powerful, life giving gift that you haven't even received yet, and your response is to ask me a question that betrays your, your concerns about your own security in the future? Well, here's my answer for you. The timing of the coming kingdom is nobody's business but the Father's. Are you guys not even a little bit inquisitive about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the baptism which he will bring with him? Well, let me say it once again with more clarity clarity this time, guys. Stay right here in Jerusalem. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes to you. And he is going to equip you to be witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And thanks to Luke, a doctor who wrote the book of Acts, we know what happened next. He says in Acts 1, 9, and 10 that Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going and then suddenly two men, presumably angels, I mean, they were dressed in white, duh, right? Right? Two angels stood before them. Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? Here's my translation. Why are you guys staring at the sky? Don't you know that cloud gazing is for the birds? Get going. You've got a mission. You've got a work to do that will be instrumental in the coming of that kingdom that you anticipate so much. Quit worrying about that. The kingdom will come in God's perfect timing. This same Jesus who has been taken from, from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Well, they finally got it. In a short time later, following the promised infilling of the Holy Spirit, they went out, they spread the word, starting in Jerusalem, and eventually it went to the whole world of their day. And all of that story is recorded by Luke in the rest of the book of Acts. You all have really read that, uh, those of you that haven't. So here's the big question for us. How do we define and implement the commission that those first disciples received from Jesus? Or to say it another way, what is our 21st century equivalent of their calling as we seek to stay in mission for Christ? We know it's important to answer those questions because Jesus reminds us over and over again in the gospels. In fact, his call to mission is issued in one form or another in every one of the first five books of the New Testament, including the passage that I just read with you. And to further emphasize the point, his call to mission comes as his last words on earth to the disciples before he ascended to heaven. So that must really mean that it was important to him that we get that message. And surely we do get how important it is to him. But whether it's as important to us, I think, is quite another matter and requires some soul search for all of us. This brings us back to my warning. Beware of mission drift. There is no doubt that the state of things in America right now are in tough shape, and they are myriad. Most of us, if not scared, are certainly concerned about what will happen next. And to be honest, it feels to me like many, many people in the body of Christ have moved into a serious mission drift mode. Some of us are thinking, you know, I'm going to take advantage of this time and start caring about me, my life, my family, my issues, my stuff. Of course, there are things that we should be caring about and taking care of, and that goes almost without saying. But the un- fortunate thing is that those feelings in an exaggerated sense are coming at a time when our message of hope and confidence in our mighty God counts the most and should be front and center. Let me repeat something I said earlier that might now resonate more with you. I believe that the issues of our day have placed the church in the perfect position to live out the mission that he has given us. Through our words and deeds, our message should be providing hope and salvation to millions of people who are frustrated and hopeless and full of fear. Perhaps some of this mission drift that is taking place has to do with our theology of mission that has gotten way too technical, way too complicated, in my opinion. Scripted messages are passed out to believers so that they will share in a perfect way the story that. People who don't know Christ need to know. When in reality there's, there's a great call for us to go and identify with people even in their fear and even in some of the things that they're experiencing that are pretty negative and to say in the process of identifying with them, you know what, we've got a message of hope that can help you just as it's helped me. Somehow or al- another along the way our understanding theologically of how missions are supposed to work has created a scenario where the real carriers of this message ought to be professional missionaries not so much lay people our job is to raise money and send the professional missionaries and to allow the the TV evangelists uh, god help us and others to, to carry the burden of telling the gospel message well you know what when you get right down to it what is that call that's repeated five times in the first five books of the New Testament. Really four basic things that I would suggest to you, every one of us in this room, every person in the body of Christ who has become a disciple, a follower, is able to carry on this mission, not just the professional missionaries. Here are the four basic things that he requires of us through his commissions. That we go, do, do, tell, and model. We need to be disciples who are going, doing, telling, modeling, all done, of course, through a loving and caring and compassionate spirit that is almost palpable to those who are hearing our message. And the context of that calling is by no means exclusive missions work that takes place on foreign soil. We have our own Jerusalem right here in the neighborhoods of Richmond. No matter how hunkered down we are because of COVID, most of us out of necessity are still going out every day to grocery stores, outdoor gatherings, casual meetings and gatherings with neighbors and friends in our neighborhood. There most certainly are these kinds of opportunities daily to go, do, tell, model, in short, to be influencers for Christ I'm a shameless name dropper, sorry about that. I can't resist the temptation to talk about a couple of really important people that I happen to know personally. And surely you've all at least heard of these two people, Bill and Linda Gates. I call her Linda, really Belinda. Raise your hand if you know them personally. Anybody here that know the Gates personally? Well, I don't know them either. (laughs) Rarely even see them on TV. But never been the recipient of their incredible donations to help my life become better. Actually, I'm not talking about people like the Gates. I'm talking about people who are virtually unknown to the people of this world. But who are well known in heaven for their exemplary obedience to the call of Christ. They are some of the influencers for Christ that I'm privileged to know personally. And I want to tell you about just a couple of them. And please forgive me that these examples are from the context of my ministry at my church because I don't know you all. And I guarantee you that the things that, that I talked for a few moments about that our people are doing are, are probably being done Five times more than we are in this congregation. I've seen some of the things that you have done. I've heard about them. I've talked to people who have been impacted by them. So please understand that. But I want to show you first the gang of saints, I call them. This is a, a group of people who go out every week into our city and minister to homeless people by feeding them. This is a ministry that started 20 years ago by the lady you see in the middle of the picture. Uh, She's between the two ladies there in the middle of the picture. Her name is Jill Harrison. She has a wonderful life, in many respects, a life of luxury. And yet she, 19, almost 20 years ago, was responding to a fact that she read in scripture, that to whom much is given, much is required. And she began just personally feeding the homeless. And then it became an add-on to our ministry at church and she began to recruit people. And these people go week after week after week. And even during this pandemic, they have been faithful in this ministry, taking all the precautions that they can, but still trusting, risking a little bit just to speak for Christ in the way that they do. You know what? They're not preachers. None of them is a gifted speaker. But they're all witnesses because they're going, doing, telling, and modeling the gospel. This is Julie Lloyd. She's a sweet lady who is involved in more outreach ministries that can begin to tell you about she goes on international missions projects. She does stateside projects. She's involved in all sorts of things. Anything that involves outreach, anything that involves obeying the commission of Jesus, she's involved in it. She's not a professional missionary. She's not a preacher. She certainly isn't. But yet she preaches sermons through her daily example of Christ-like servanthood, And those stories have filled the annals of heaven. And oh, I forgot to tell you, she's 78 years old and still ticking, still going on strong. Finally, I want to tell you about a really famous married couple. And I'm going to take a little more time with this couple, Loris and Joyce Johnson. I've known them personally for 40 years, and they have impacted my life immeasurably more more than I could ever tell you this last year both of them moved into their eternal retirement and it was such a blessing for me to be able to go to Florida where they had retired here and to do their funerals I want to tell you about how I met them and the significance of that meeting back in the middle of uh, a, a tremendous spurt, I would call it, of, of interest in missions in our church, West End Assembly. There was this burden that God gave to several of us that some of what we were doing ought to impact some people that that are called hidden people, hidden in the sense that, that they are located in areas where the gospel might be being preached clearly on a normal basis, but it was going right over their heads because of cultural differences, and so they were officially an unreached people. That was the burden that we got, to reach a community like that. We did some studying and read some of the missiology books that were current at that time, and we discovered that there was a a huge community of Mayan Indians, just about five hours, if you catch good flights, from Richmond to Belize in Central America little tiny country south of Mexico. We went down there and we assisted a church in Belize City, a pretty big church in our denomination with some ministry and building. But that was not where the Maya were. And so I talked to our missionary down there and I said, where are the Maya in Belize? I got I to gotta visit them. I got to see them. I got to feel what's going on there because the Lord has put them on our heart as a church. Well, he put me in touch with a guy named Loris Johnson. You see him in the picture. He said, I don't know much about him. He's a layman who came here from Florida, and I understand he's working among the Maya in the jungles down there. He said, um, I think I have his phone number, and maybe, uh, maybe you can talk to him on the phone. I called him down there, and he said, oh, Lord, man. You know, he had a little Florida kind of accent, and uh, I could tell right away that he was a good old boy, kind of like Scott Johnson. No, no, no. I'm just, that's just a little allusion to a great guy that I've had the privilege of meeting since I came here. But I said to the missionary, look, long story short, I want to go meet him. We were still in Belize City with our little team. I said, I'd like to fly down there. Is there anything that can take me down there? A bird? Anything. And he lined me up with a, a little flight. And I flew down into an area that, to be honest with you, shocked me because it was absolute... Uh, jungle. I'm talking about pristine jungle that had hardly been affected. I got off at the airstrip and Loris Johnson met me there along with his wife Joyce. And we shook hands and, and then he said come on I'm gonna take you to see the Maya. And we drove about 40 minutes from where he was living into again dense jungle. Back little dirt roads and we came to two different communities that he showed us that day. One community was called Red Bank Village, the other, Maya Mopan. Since going there many times, I now call that Maya Bedpan. Okay, so you get get the idea of uh, what it's like to go to that place. That was a joke, by the way. Some of you, your insomnia has not been healed. So he took us to these villages and I was absolutely overwhelmed with emotion to see the squalor, to see the needs And then to hear the story of these people as he took me from house to house, hammock to hammock this one village, almost the entire village had malaria at the same time and and we would go and pray for a person in, in a hammock in this house and then he would say, my cousin lives two doors down, could you go to his house and pray for him. Thatched roof, dirt floor, little stick houses that they lived in and many of them still do. Well, by the time we had done that, I was absolutely a case. I, I knew that God was directing us to be a part of what Loris and Joyce Johnson were doing. And that began back in 1983-ish. It was right between 83 and 84 that we, that we began a ministry in concert with Loris and Joyce Johnson. And we sent group after group after group down there. Sometimes I would go alone and teach in the communities But through the ministry of Loris and Joyce Johnson, I realized that these people had been totally unreached. And they began their ministry among these people just by coming into the village and identifying with them and having a meal with them. And the people thought they were crazy, like, what are they doing here? And Joyce used flannel graphs. Who uses those anymore to reach kids? They used flannel graphs, set them up in the middle of the community, and even adults came. To hear this unusual presentation through the use of flannel graphs. Little pictures of of people in bathrobes imitating first century disciples. And they didn't know the difference. Out of their ministry, both of those villages, and I'm not kidding you, at that time, both of those villages had committed, just about every adult person had committed to be a follower of Christ. Now, that is sensational. And I'll tell you, we continue to go there now. We continue to minister to those people, helping them to mature even more than they have already. But what I wanted to leave you with this morning is an image. This is an image of how powerful an influencer for Christ can be among people who have very little hope and who live with a lot of fear and a lot of hardship. My first visit to one of their church services, was in a little church that Loris had built and that that community would meet in several times a week and especially on Sundays, morning and evening. And he had said to me, you know, come on, I want to take you to church today. And I went in there and I sat off to the side and the men sat on one side and the women on the other and all the little children sat in the front of the building. I asked them one time, much later, hey, why do you all divide the men and the women? I asked the elders of that church at the time that they had begun to develop leadership. And it was like an amazing question that they had never considered before. And so the elders got together, and they had a little meeting. And you could just see it was animated as they were talking about, uh, yeah, we do sit apart from each other. We don't sit as families, men, women, children. And finally, the chief elder came back and he said, John, we don't know why. <laughs> that was his answer. We don't know why what we do why we're doing that. But the kids who sat on the front row, I was amazed by something I noticed. They sing spirited songs and they get into the songs, clapping, and they rejoice when when they worship the Lord. And I noticed that the adult community was clapping some of the songs. And one of the songs in particular got my attention. It's, What a Mighty God We Serve. I don't know how many of you have ever heard that song. But they started singing that. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. And they were clapping. Oh, they were into the song. And I noticed the children And they were all standing, and they were doing this. They weren't clapping. They were going, what a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Try that once, would you? You don't have to sing with me because you don't know that song. But come on, step out of your dots. I know you're Baptist, but you can do this. (laughs) Try it once. Just your left hand on your left knee. What a mighty God we serve. What a mighty God we serve. Angels bow before him. Angels bow before him. Heaven and earth adore him. What a mighty God we serve. Now let me tell you what I noticed. As I was looking around trying to figure out this sociological phenomenon, I noticed that the influencer was at work on the other side of the room. Leading the charge. He didn't invite the children to do that. They just did it automatically because he was their hero. And you know what I haven't told you? His greatest deficit turned out to be the greatest tool that he had to bring a generation of children into an understanding of how they can worship God. Because Loris Johnson, from age 10 onward, has lived with only one arm. His left arm. He couldn't clap like everyone else in the room. And so as he began to worship the Lord, as was his habit, so did those children. And you know what? Many of them now are, of course, adults. I go back to those villages, and those adults who were once children are still practicing so many of the things that Loris and Joyce Johnson taught them. You think about what a deficit it is to live with just one arm. How do you put toothpaste on your toothbrush? Loris taught me you just hold your toothbrush in your mouth, take the toothpaste, put it on, and you know what? His girls, his children, still do that to this day, and they both have two arms. The point of all of this is that when you take your greatest deficit, when you take your handicaps, and turn them over to God, he can use those handicaps in a powerful way. He can even take some of the things that are going on right now that seem to be impediments to ministry and turn them around as great tools that he uses through you to reach the world. What I'm saying is that if you find yourself in mission drift this morning, there is a simple solution. Turn up the fire On your role as a devout devout follower of Jesus. Become an influencer for Him. As you're busy going into the world to meet daily needs of life, start looking for people that God, in a miraculous, supernatural way, will put in your paths. People who need to be influenced for Christ. In your own way, in your own words, do some telling and modeling which in these desperate days is exactly the message that so many people need to hear. Cloud-gazing is for the birds. We have great promises about eternity that are so awesome to meditate on. But he would take our eyes and put us right now back in this earth that is in trouble and would say to us, come on, start slapping your leg. We know you don't have much, but we also know that you can be used for my kingdom if you will keep slapping your knee. I want to pray for you this morning. Lord, I thank you for these moments that we have shared about something that is dear to your heart and is dear to ours. Lord, we confess that we can do better and I pray for this congregation, Lord, that that they will absolutely be charged up to minister to the hurts and the pains of a generation of Americans who just six months ago were so self-confident and who now are worrying about their very existence. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.